Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. The other major reaction I get is, oh my goodness, I've been talking about doing that for years, but it looks so daunting. How did you get it right? Like, how were you brave enough to do that? How did you get all the pieces in place to do that? And I think what people mean is like, how did you get the first 10 years worth of things in place to do that? And the answer is you you do not, right? You don't. You would never do it. The, the question of how do you get to the next feasible step in the direction of the life you want to live in um, feels riskier to people because you can't see seven steps ahead. But actually... You can't ever see seven steps ahead. It's delusion to think you can see seven steps ahead. And so admitting that you can't and then just taking a step and then another step and then another step. Actually, we get more done if we treat complexity that way. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Jennifer, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So you have a new book out called Unleash Your Complexity Genius, which I think is uh, fitting considering what a complex world we're currently living in. But before we get to that, I wanted to start by asking you, what did your parents do for work and how did that end up shaping choices that you've ended up making with your life and career? Oh, my goodness. So much. (laughs) It's amazing. Um, My father is an English professor. Uh, and from him, I think I get my love of stories and of writing. He's an incredible writer and storyteller, my dad. Um, and my mom was actually one of the first executive coaches. And she got me into this question of complexity. Uh, you know, mom and I geek out and read complexity books together and she pushes my thinking around and, um, so in my case, my parents and their careers, are, like their fingerprints are completely on what I do for a living these days. Yeah. Well, what was the narrative around your house uh, about making your way in the world? I mean, I, my dad's a professor, too. So, you know, especially in an Indian family, it's like you're headed to academia or some version of it 
that is going to lead to a high paying job no matter what. And needless to say, I'm, you know, the, the sorting error that God made by giving me <laughs> to my family. <laughs> um, the, the story in my family was if you take an academic job, you're going to be destitute and grading papers all the time. Um, and so I, I was a professor. <laughs> I, I became a professor and, uh, I spent a lot of time grading papers. Um, so the, yeah, the, the advice my parents gave me was kind of do the thing that you love. And the, the path I took was always towards how could I make a difference in the world? How could I make people's lives better or easier in some way? And, uh, I, I kind of fell into this profession on that quest. Mm -hmm. Okay. You just mentioned that, uh, despite being told that you'd be destitute and doing nothing but grading papers, uh, if you became a professor, you did become one. Why? Because I love it so much. Because I love ideas. I, um, I, I love, I love the power of ideas to change lives. And I, I love the power of education to open doors for people. So I became a professor um, of teacher transformation to help teachers and then principals uh, change their schools in a way that made kids' lives better. And then over time, I, you know, kind of looking for leverage. Over time, I went towards leaders and their constituents um, because I thought maybe that was a more direct way to change lives. And mm -hmm. that kind of the niche I found myself in. Also in there, I, I kind of stepped off the professor track because we moved to New Zealand. So I, I've also done a lot of um, kind of finding my way through professions that allow me to live in the places I most want to live. Mm, wow. Okay. You know, it's funny because every time I have an academic, I talk to them about how they would change the education system. And you just happen to be the person whose entire, you know, work has been centered around that teacher transformation. So I have to ask you, I mean, we've got a situation where people are coming out of school with mountains of student loan debt. Chase mm. Jarvis said that basically we have an education system that is not designed to prepare for the people for the future they're going into, where they're going to have five jobs at the same time. And as a failed byproduct of an elite university, uh, I wanted to ask you, if you were tasked with redesigning the entire system from the ground up, what would you change and how would you do it? Which I realized we could talk about that for an hour, which I think is perfect because it'll make a great segue into complexity. We could talk about this for so much more than an hour. I, I think that the, you know, the education model is very old. It comes straight from a kind of elite idea about what are the subjects that the learned should know, the, the kind of elite should know, and how do we segment those subjects into specialties that were divided a long time ago. The way the world works now, there, there's kind of no room for specialties like mine. Like, where does complexity go? Where does leadership go in, in these curricula? And, uh, and, and how do we get some of the emerging necessary skills and ways of being 
to be part of a curriculum. And you have to let go of traditional ideas of subjects to be able to do that. But to change that is really hard because actually parents do a lot of insisting that school looks recognizable to them. Um, and and so I, I was in New Zealand. My kids were in school and New Zealand pivoted to a curriculum that looked to me to be really effective at, if you if you dig into it, at what people need to be learning in school. And the parents basically went ballistic and said, yeah, but where, where are my, where are my kids practicing long division? Like, I really want to understand how they're practicing long division. And so there, there's just a really interesting set of pushes and pulls that keep education pretty stagnant. Mm, yeah. I, I, I've talked to so many people about this and, and, you know, from looking at it from different angles, I, I think the thing that has always struck me, particularly based on my experience, was that I felt like going to college was kind of like choosing items off a fast food menu, even though there's just this diversity of possible experiences that you could have. And yet it's like these are the options that are put in front of you. Choose them and ignore all the possibilities that surround you. It's it's exactly right. The The most interesting I think now my career has done a lot of this kind of spanning. But for me, the most interesting questions are, are discipline spanning questions. You know, and you're talking about fast food menu. This is like a, how do you become the chef of your own experience? And, um, and there are some universities that do this well, but by and large, universities are tied to these kind of traditional pathways that are interesting. And they have been interesting for others, but they they are not keeping up with the complexity of the demands made on people as they graduate mm-hmm. and as they join the workforce. So one thing that I am very curious about, uh, obviously, this is a book published by the Stanford University Press. So what role does status play in all of this? Uh, because I, I think that, you know, we put these elite universities on a pedestal. And as a result, you have students who are willing to go to the end of the earth and hell, even have their parents spend fortunes to, you know, pay somebody to take tests for them when mm. their parents are people like Lori Laughlin. Yeah. Yeah. The, the connection between status and American universities is just so, I mean, it's fascinating, right? Um, my doctorate's from Harvard and I have my, bachelor's degree from a really fantastic state school called St. Mary's College of Maryland. Um, nobody cares about that degree, right? As, mm. as soon as you, as soon as you go to one of these places that um, got the big ticket name, that's the, mm-hmm. that's the thing that matters most to folks. So uh, that is a somewhat American not wholly American, but it's a somewhat American um, desire to chase the the name brand, I think, um, mm-hmm. that I see less in the other countries in which I've lived. Yeah. Well, I want to bring back a clip from an episode that we did with Scott Galloway, where he talks about this idea of educational institutions becoming luxury brands. Take a listen. Despite the fact that the number of people going to college has increased dramatically, uh, the number of seats 
that have been offered by the top universities has stayed flat. So Stanford's applications have tripled in the last 30 years, but the number of seats that they've increased has, has they haven't increased their freshman class by anything substantial because we as academics, and I include myself in this, have become drunk with the notion of exclusivity. And that is we no longer see ourselves as public servants. We are see ourselves as luxury brands. And every fall, the head of admissions and the deans brag about how impossible it is to get into the college. And you can't be at a party without someone joking that they could never get into their alma mater today. But that's a bad thing because on a risk-adjusted basis, it's likely that your children will be somewhere in your weight class. So as a Harvard alum, what do you make of that? I mean, I, I agree that this is, this is a problem. The question is, do we want to make some of these institutions larger? Do we want to expand their footprint? Or do we want to figure out what's the value of a college education from, you know, Iowa State? Uh, and, and how could we care more deeply about, about that? Um, you know, could we be, could we be valuing more than just a name brand? Could we be valuing like what the education does? I, I taught for a while at a place called George Mason University, which is not a name brand school. Um, but they, the reason I went there is because they had amazing redesigns of like what a student experience would be for adult learners that just floored me in how sophisticated they were, how thoughtful they were. You know, I, I think rewarding what the universities are doing instead of the shortcut of rewarding the, the brand name of them would be exciting. That would be exciting. Yeah. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. What did you see as the differences in different countries uh, compared to the United States uh, in terms of the way that the entire sort of structure of education is from, you know, sort of kindergarten to getting into college? I, I've, I've lived in places where the structures are really quite different. So New Zealand is the most, uh, it's kind of the most flexible curriculum in the world. And the, the way teachers enact that curriculum is incredibly flexible, all the way to the way you get into university is more flexible. Whether or not you need an undergraduate degree to pursue a a master's degree is more flexible. So you have all of these lines that say uh, there are a lot, a lot of ways to be successful here. Um, then you kind of travel through the U.S., come to England, uh, where I spent some, some years and where my son went to university and graduate school. Um, and there, that system is actually pretty rigid. Um, you take a series of tests as a teenager, like a 16-year-old, and the the choices you make on those tests pretty much lock you into what university you're going to go to and what you can major in. Uh, so there the choices get made really early. And so those tests become a driving force and just a complete set of misery in the lives of those families um, because so much rests on the results of those tests. So I think there are lots of ways to do it. Um, like all things that are complex, how do we, how do, how do we let people combine in a different way? How do we leave more flexibility of pathways so that we reach more people? I, j I just think that there's a, a huge amount of human value that we that we lose when we don't have these systems designed well that truly we cannot afford to lose the the contribution of humans to the collective challenges we face we just can't afford to leave them out 
uh, because they happen to be born in the wrong place or they didn't do well on a test or they happen to be the wrong race or gender to be considered successful or elite on their particular pathway. I, I think mm-hmm. this is a really important thing to work out. Yeah. So one question I realized is just absolutely ludicrous that we ask kids is, what do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, it's ridiculous. It's like, wait a minute, you're asking me how I want to spend the rest of my life when I barely lived a fraction of it. I mean, ask the 40-year-old that question they often can't answer, right? Why do we expect a 16-year-old? Why do we expect an 8-year-old to be able to answer this question? It's ridiculous. When, and, you know, I, my daughter came home from school one day when she was, I don't know, 12. And she was furious. And she mom, my teacher told me today that the job I'm going to have in my career probably hasn't been invented yet. She was like, what are you grownups doing that means there's so much uncertainty in my life? Like, yeah, it's, you know, it's fair. And at the same time, why do we believe that we should be able to guess what our career is going to be like when, in fact, we, we who have careers who are somewhere in there know that it's just been a series of this choice and that choice that has happened to open up a particular path that we've followed um, or hacked out of the wilderness for ourselves. Right. And we've got to teach kids how to how to compile, how to create, how to craft a career as opposed to how to, you know, follow a particular lane that gets you in a particular job that happens to exist today, but might not exist in five years, 10 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I realized you know people would make decisions like, hey, I'm going to be a doctor. Like, have you ever set foot in a hospital? Like, what do you know about being a doctor? I mean, this is very common with Indian people. It's like, wait a minute, you're going to college and you've decided how you're going to spend the next 10 years of your life and you have no data points. And that was one thing that became very apparent to me uh, as a byproduct of doing this work and talking to I mean, hundreds of people like yourself, where I realized Tina Selig said something to me that always stayed with me and that she, that was that passion follows engagement. And that was what I realized is like, nobody tells you, you know, don't like pay attention to the things that you find engaging. It's more mm. go do this and you'll get this job. Uh, mm. Whereas there's no question of whether you're in the right job to begin with. No, I completely agree. This, this, this question of how do we use the things that we're the best at? You know, how do we figure out what our strengths are, package those strengths together in a way, you know, this, beautiful idea about where my longing meets the world's hunger, right? How do we, um, how do we help people understand that process instead of having people look at kind of the known careers at this moment and then try and get on a path towards one of those known careers? I, I, I think a lot of people end up doing things they hate because that was what they knew how to do. They knew how to get on that path. And it's scary to not be on a path. And so they got on a path and if they happen to hate it, whatever. Um, but I think that costs that costs those individuals, but it also costs the world. And what could those individuals have done if they were on a path that they were passionate about and that they were great at? Mm-hmm. 
Well, I think that makes a, a perfect segue into talking about the book. So what was it that sparked your idea for writing this book about unleashing your complexity genius? The the book I wrote before this one, um, which is called Unlocking Leadership Mind Traps, was about all the ways our body uh, is kind of misprogrammed to to help us in complexity. There are all these little traps we fall into because our our bodily system is very often trying to shield us from complexity as though complexity is your your enemy. In fact, it happens to be true. I've discovered in the research for this book that your body metabolizes complexity as threat. Um, and and so it makes sense that we fall into these traps if what we are is feeling threatened by by the fact of complexity. But I got really curious about what are our resources, right? There must be a ton of resources, I figured. What are they? Could I name them? And then could we expand them so that we could kind of look at what would be great about us and what we have at our fingertips if we could just mobilize it? This is where this book came from, um, kind of the opposite question of the book before it. And, and looking at how could we, how could we craft our, our momentary experience, kind of our bodily state to handle complexity better? And then over time, how can we craft the conditions of our lives? If, if, if you buy the idea that your life is just going to be complex, how could you craft the conditions of your life to take advantage of that complexity, to use it as a, as a kind of force that propels you in a direction you want to go in? as opposed to doing what our body does if we don't pay attention by default, which is be afraid of it, hide from it, be anxious about it, try to get away from it, try to oversimplify it. Um, So that's where that book came from. Yeah. Well, in the opening of the book, you say that we've set up our organizations, our schools, often even our families to create predictable spaces where we mostly believe we know what's going to happen next, We've created systems and structures that allow us to handle difficult situations with what looks like a kind of predictable ease. And all this uncertainty wreaks havoc on our systems, financial systems, political systems, social systems. But the first stress system that leaders must deal with is their own nervous system. We cannot handle the complexity outside us unless we are able to notice and ultimately change what complexity does inside us. And when I read that, my first thought, was thinking about this whole idea of uncertainty and complexity and how we do everything we can to increase simplicity and certainty in our lives. Like we resist uncertainty. And I don't remember which book it was, but I, I remember, you know, seeing this sentence that uncertainty is beneficial because it makes us feel alive. And I thought to myself, yeah, if you didn't have any uncertainty, your life would be like Groundhog Day. It would be pretty mind numbing. Right, right, right. And, and most of the, most of the habits most of the most of the hobbies and um, things we do for enjoyment are unpredictable. Sports are unpredictable. That's why we like them. You know, movies, we want an unpredictable ending. We watch TV shows because they have a cliffhanger or whatever it is, right? We read books that surprise us. So we really crave this kind of unpredictability in our leisure time. Um, if it's safe and kind of fenced away from our actual, the actual conditions of our lives. And in the actual conditions of our lives, we want to know that our kids are going to be successful, that we're going to have a, an appropriate job, that everything's going to go kind of swimmingly for us. Um, 
Yeah. Well, I'm laughing because I, you know, I, at 44, there's only one thing I know for sure. And that's that nothing in my life has gone according to plan. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, and almost always we look back on that and we say, and thank God. Yeah. Right. Thank God I didn't. Because the plan I had was so much less interesting than Mm -hmm. the life that I have ended up in. Um, So if we could just harness some of that and understand that complexity is, is a, is a force for creativity, innovation, newness. Um, it's got all kinds of good features. We just have to lean into those as opposed to leaning away from them. Well, let's talk about harnessing this because you say that one of the core paradoxes of complex systems is that a lot of effort can have no impact and a tiny bit of effort can have a lot of impact. And of course, in complex systems, the bummer is that you can't know which until afterwards. <laughs> right. uh, so one, talk to me about why you can't know which it is until afterwards. And then with that in mind, then how do we keep ourselves from just spinning our wheels? So you can't know until afterwards because the nature of complexity is is unpredictability. Like it's, it's very nature is there are so many um, moving parts, so many interdependencies that you can't know how this this set of things is going to turn out. If you knew how it was going to turn out, it wouldn't actually be technically complex. So mm. by its nature, complexity is unpredictable. Um, so. And yet we crave, we totally crave predictability, right? Our, our, um, our bodies actually are predictive machines. We, we have evolved to this place by predicting, you know, in relatively straightforward ways, what things are dangerous, what things are not dangerous, things that were dangerous yesterday, probably going to be dangerous tomorrow. Uh, the modern world picks a lot of that up in, in a new way that we have to teach our nervous systems to be able to handle. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I was thinking about this idea of, you know, you know, actions that have uh, no impact and a tiny bit of effort can have a lot of impact. And my friend Julian Smith has been mentoring me. And if I were to identify one theme in our calls, it's not about what I should do. It's literally every week we talk about what I should stop doing every time I mm-hmm. meet with him. Um, so talk to me about that because it, you're right. That is kind of a paradox in that I'm actually in one way simplifying, but, you know, trying to solve a complex problem and we'll, we'll actually frame this for in something concrete once we go through these themes. But, um, yeah, I mean, like, you know, I, it just kind of struck me that that was so interesting that here I am, you know, getting help on what to do and 90% of our conversations about what not to do. Yeah, it's fascinating. The, uh, one of the quirks of the human psychology is that we tend to think in additive ways about improvement. Uh-huh. So if you give, most of the studies will show you that if you give somebody the chance to, quote, improve something, uh-huh. you tell them that this is their goal. They'll, all, no matter what the thing is, they'll almost always put something on. We rarely think of improvement as taking something off. But of course, in complexity, we've got to try a lot of things to figure out where these high leverage issues are. And to try a lot of things, you'll have to give them up, right? You have to say, oh, this is high leverage. I'm going to stop doing that. I mm-hmm. had a, 
it was it was teaching a bunch of leaders about experimentation. And one of the forms of experimentation I encourage most is experimentation about stopping things. And this leader sort of, I think she was the CFO. Um, and she found that her people were spending some huge amount of their time creating reports, financial reports of, you know, somebody asked for a financial report cut this way. And so they make that report and then they make it next month and then they make it next month. And they were doing like whatever, some huge number, 153 reports a month. And, um, and she thought, you know, what if, what if people don't actually need these reports? Maybe they wanted them once and they weren't that helpful. I don't know if anybody reads them. So she said, next month, I'm going to make all the reports, but I'm not going to send any of them out. And we're going to see which ones get asked for. So she made all the reports. They kept them in a drawer. Um, and something like six reports got asked for that month. And so the next month, they just made those six reports. They let the 140X go. And nobody ever complained. And she was like, actually, my people were spending half of their time doing things that were absolutely not adding any value for the organization. But it's super important for us to be able to cut things out and see, does this matter? Is this even a problem? Mm. And oftentimes it's not a problem. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, speaks to this idea that, you know, you say, uh, you talk about in the book where you say one of the most important ways to unleash your complexity genius is to notice this action urge and pause, stay with the discomfort you might feel and then make a choice about whether to act or not. And the, I don't know what it is lately. I feel like I'm reading books about productivity that are all about doing nothing. And I'm like, maybe this is a message from the universe to me to slow the fuck down. You know, it's just like, okay, I, I really like, I've been thinking about that. And I thought to myself, like, you know what? there are probably three or four things I do every week that are honestly impactful. And then the others are kind of like, what if I did less of them? And I said, okay, these are the non-negotiables. The rest of them are optional. And would anybody notice? And it's amazing because you're actually more effective, but quote unquote, less productive. Because I think that what I noticed was there's this big difference between being effective and productive as we think of it in the modern world, which is just crossing tasks off a list. And it was like, this is such a terrible way to measure productivity. And it's generally the productivity that you get from crossing tasks off a list. It is very satisfying, right? It, it, mm -hmm. feels, it feels delightful. We get a little dopamine hit when we do that. But it's almost always a diversion from thinking hard and creating new stuff. And actually, it's the thinking hard and creating new stuff that is most value adding, right? That's that's the particular gift we each bring into the world is what the combination of our skills, our knowledge, our experience pushed up against the problems of the world in this moment. You know, like, do you really need to run this report or do this thing again that's been done a billion times? Probably not. Yeah. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, you talk about this moment, which I think makes a perfect segue to this next idea. You say one of our favorite ideas from complexity is to remember that the seeds for the future exist right now. Whatever the conditions are right now, that's what you've got as ingredients to make the future. The outcomes you're getting today are the result of the way the context is working with right now. So I think that that really struck me because it's kind of a paradox, almost a contradiction to this idea of, okay, you know, pause before you act. And I know you're not saying do nothing, although in some cases, maybe it does make sense to do nothing. But there's this whole idea, right, where people say, if you just keep doing what you're doing today, you're, you know, today's going to look exactly, tomorrow's going to look exactly like today. Yeah, the, the noticing where I am right now, which the human mind is not good at, right? The human mind is really good at relitigating the past. It's really good at dreaming about and often, often catastrophizing about the future. Um, that's what the human mind really wants to do. So paying attention to where we are now and thinking about what's a reasonable next step from this moment is that unlocks an unbelievable amount of possibility. Um, as an example, we 
last year, um, a, a bunch of friends and I bought a big house in the southwest of France, and we live in this house. We live in community in this house. Um, and when I tell people this story, people almost always say, some people say that sounds awful. I would never want to do this. This is a, this is one of the reactions I get. But the other major reaction I get is, oh my goodness, I've been talking about doing that for years, but it looks so daunting. How did you get it right? Like, how were you brave enough to do that? How did you get all the pieces in place to do that? And I think what people mean is like, how did you get the first 10 years worth of things in place to do that? And the answer is you, you do not, right? You don't, you would never do it. The, the question of how do you get to the next feasible step in the direction of the life you want to live in, um, feels riskier to people because you can't see seven steps ahead. But actually, mm -hmm. you can't ever see seven steps ahead. It's delusion to think you can see seven steps ahead. And so admitting that you can't and then just taking a step and then another step and then another step, actually, we get more done if we treat complexity that way. But we do less of the kind of repetitive stuff and we do less of the crossing every T and dotting every I on our way to the future that we that we can't predict anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a bit like you're pulling out of your driveway, expecting all the lights to be green from right. when you want to drive from LA to Chicago. This is something that I realized. It took me a while to come to this realization. I said, it's kind of like standing in two different spots in the same room. If you change where you're standing, the view changes and you'll see things mm. you can't see right now. It's the only way to see those things is to take a step. Yeah, yeah. The, and the the reason why you were talking about stopping things, the reason why you have to stop things is to free up the time and space for you to be able to take a step and then notice what happened when you took that step. A lot of us kind of take steps without noticing um, and therefore without seeing the new possibilities that are emerging by virtue of the fact that we just took that step. A lot of us are, you know, kind of sleepwalking through our lives. Complexity demands that we open our eyes and look around. Mm -hmm. Well, you say that we think we see the world clearly, but it turns out it's not as if you can see the world as it is. There's so many things happening all the time that to see it all would be crippling if it were even possible. So we filter out most of the world and then try to make sense of what we filtered. So when I read that, I couldn't help but think of the role that cognitive biases play in mm. distorting our perceptions of reality and you know the choices we make. And I'll give you the most asinine example. So I have a, um, a theory that I should not date women with small dogs because I've dated three and they were awful. So in my mind, you know, now that I've offended all my female listeners with small dogs, I think there are, you know, like, and it's a joke. A friend of mine said, well, one, your sample size is not large enough. And I was like, yeah, an economist named Alison Strager validated my theory. And then my friend looks at me. He's like, you're an idiot. He was like, you don't even like dogs that much. But the thing is that, you know, and it's funny, like, even though I know this is absolutely just has no basis in reality and based on a sample size of three. If I'm on a dating app and I see a girl with a picture of a small dog, I swipe left. <laughs> and God knows I may have missed out on some really amazing woman. But the truth is that that's my cognitive bias at work. Even though I'm aware of it, I still do that. This is why we have to notice, right? 
you might choose to do that. There might be enough women in the world that you could forego all of the women with small dogs and still find happiness, <laughs> right? Yes, yeah, exactly. So now you just supported my 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 decision. So so I I am I I am not going to contradict your decision. Knowing that you have a cognitive bias gives you the chance to say, do I is it is this a thing I want to be in or not? Um do, do I want to fall into this? We we have biases about so many things. We have to choose which are the ones we want to overcome, uh, which are the important ones. And you you could be running an experiment for the next year that, that your small dog theory, right? You might go with it. As long as you know it's an experiment, you know what you're learning, um, and you're open to change your hypothesis if the thing that you're learning is actually the woman you fall in love with has a small dog or before you before you know that she had a small dog or that you can you don't like women with cats or whatever it is right maybe you are like an anti-animal bias i don't know um, yeah but paying attention to what are our biases and how are they getting in the way is really pivotal for us because our biases create our reality and our reality has to be created by something but the the thing I learned more than anything else in the research for this book was that we spend so much of our lives on autopilot and autopilot isn't that good for the conditions of now. Autopilot has been very good, but autopilot is not that good for the conditions of right now. And so how do we decide which bits of autopilot to turn off without flooding our system so much. We can't turn it all off because we couldn't handle that. And besides, it's impossible. Um, how do we decide which bits to turn off and when? And how do we spend more time creating the conditions we want for our lives instead of kind of on autopilot, on default, taking what comes? Well, I, I think that you know, it, when you think about conditions, I think about the fact that, you know, people spend all this time trying to figure out their values. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like if you can figure out the conditions, they'll reveal your values. I think that the the thing we want to do is notice how much is revealed to us. I absolutely agree. If you find out, if you look at the conditions that you've created in your life, you can see what your values are. And if your values are different than that, then you might want to think about what conditions do you need to change in your life. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about the body itself, because one of the things that you say is the single most powerful communication channel we have for our nervous system is our breath. It's not only the way we can find out which nervous system is running us, it's also the way to switch gears. The genius of your breath, like other geniuses, is that is both automatic and an intentional processes in your body, there aren't many of our vital processes like that. So talk to me about the role that something like breath that, you know, most of us kind of take for granted uh, plays in your ability to handle complexity. I have started to think of the breath as the most underrated, underutilized leadership tool at our disposal. Um, just because I see so many leaders race through their meetings, their days, their tasks uh, on autopilot, kind of not noticing what they're doing. And I, I noticed this particularly during COVID, during the sort of 
most lockdown days of COVID, when I would, it would watch, I would watch executive teams at work or I would talk to leaders. And I, I saw that they were rarely actually with us, right? And, and leaders had this sense that they needed to be on camera all the time. Um, but they were actually multitasking a lot of the time. <laughs> Um, which means you can be on camera and not be paying any attention. And we can actually walk through our lives that way. We're kind of on camera without paying attention. The breath helps us understand uh, where we are and it helps us return to this place, um, the, this place where we are in this moment and actually be present in this space. Because one of the core... One of the core things we need as we're leading anything, as we're, as we're in a relationship, as we're leading a team, as we're um, leading an idea is our presence. And we don't actually come to presence very easily um, because we're either in the past or the future. It's not, that's not now. Our breath really links us to now. And it, as our breath changes, if we have any kind of status in the room, as our breath changes, it changes the breathing of others in the room as well. And so we use this on purpose and not just breathe. Breathing is great. We need to do that also. Um, but if we use our breath on purpose, we can change our relationship to what's going on right now. We can change what's happening in the nervous systems of those around us. We can change what's, what, like what cocktail of neurochemicals is flowing through our veins. It actually is a really powerful switch. And, uh, and we have access to it 100% of the time, which is just amazing. There are very few leadership moves we have access to all the time. But this is one. Hmm. Well, I think that makes a perfect segue into the other one, which is sleep. Uh, and you say that to enable us to see patterns in order to address complex challenges, we need to be able to hold on to what we're seeing in the present. Sleep, particularly the deep sleep that happens early in the night, is astonishing at updating and pruning our memory as it moves memories from the brain's short-term storage area to the more stable and long-term memory space. So talk to me about this, because I, I think that all of us are aware that we need more sleep, and most of us are hyper-aware that we're not getting enough. Because I remember uh, talking to my friend Anantha. She wrote this uh, book about Ayurveda. And I told her, it's like, we have all these sleep tracking apps. And I realized that at a certain point, I was not getting enough sleep because I was so obsessed. Not just me, like I had a roommate <laughs> who spent more time worrying about his sleep score than the quality of his sleep. And I'm like, wait, who gives a damn if you got a great sleep score? And I read a New York Times article saying that this actually ends up being a, a huge source of anxiety for people uh, who are tracking their sleep. Yeah, I, I have tried to get people to track time in bed as opposed to like the particular quality of sleep for this exact reason, because, oh my goodness, what you don't want is to take a thing that's supposed to reduce stress and make it into a thing that increases stress. But I think that if we understand how 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 much a part of our job it is to create the conditions for us to be able to sleep, uh, even if we're not particularly sleeping that night or that even that week, but understanding that there's some really classic things we can do, which 
I swear, the number one rule for me and that I try to I try to offer to the leaders I work with is just watch when you schedule calls. I have so many leaders who in in the in the desire to have more quality family time and the desire to lead a global team, they'll do things like uh, take calls with this part of the world before six because their kids get up at six and then they've got to be with their kids for breakfast. Then they work a full day. Then they don't take any calls after six, between six and nine, because they want to be with their kids. And so then they take calls only after nine. Now, this has extended the workday in the most ridiculous way. And it also extends the amount of time your nervous system is really activated, which means you won't be able to sleep. Um, Mm -hmm. So actually creating boundaries, this is more into what do I need to stop doing? Creating boundaries about what the workday is, creating boundaries about how am I managing, you know, my, my needs my bodily need and uh, and following those boundaries actually is transformational. You know, I've had leaders who say, like, okay, Jennifer, I'm not going to take any calls before six or after 10. And like, that's a win for them, right? Before six or after 10 is a win. Okay, let's stop there. And then let's see if we can even pull in the hours a little bit more. Well, let's talk about emotion and curiosity. Um, Curiosity is is one of my favorite subjects. Well, let's talk about emotions first, because I think that we spend so much time uh, letting our emotions wreak havoc on our lives, and yet we also obsessively try to control them. It's, it's beautiful, isn't it? Isn't it that they they both like flow through us like a tsunami, and then we try to deny the existence of most of them? I think it's a, it's a great human pattern. No. But my life was changed by this idea that um, emotions are the story our mind makes up about sensations. And our body, we experience sensations. We look at the context, our, we make up a story, and we call that an emotion. We say, oh, I'm sad. I'm angry. Uh, I'm disappointed. I'm delighted. Whatever, whatever it might be. And and actually, this idea is so, for me, this idea uh, contrasts with the notion that we have these things called emotions, these things called emotions arise in us as just fully fledged things. There's a thing called sad. There's a thing called disappointed. If you believe this, um, this kind of constructive idea about emotions, we can begin to reconstruct our stories about emotions. And, and that reconstruction actually changes the emotions we're having. And so it, it sort of convinced me that we have a lot more power to reshape the, um, the stories we tell ourselves about what we're feeling and therefore to reshape how we're making sense of ourselves and our interactions in the world in a way that's more helpful, more empowering for us. Mm-hmm. Well, curiosity probably is one of my favorite parts of any story. Like, I mean, everything I do is driven by personal curiosity. Every choice I make about podcasts, every book I read, every 
uh, creative project I work on, this is the, the driving force. And you say curiosity is a powerful antidote to the perils of certainty. Certainty is like a poison in complexity because it robs you of your senses. You could become blind to new evidence, deaf to the perspective of others, narrow in view, your view and your data. Curiosity is a self we can apply over the poisonous certainty and it works to open up that which was closed to restore our ability to sense into the unknown, to think and feel alongside others. And, you know, I can't help but think that this is something that just gets diminished with age. And I feel like part of that is because we are socially programmed to be less and less curious. Uh, you know, if you ask, you, you talk to a kid, I mean, every parent has had this kid ask them why to the point where their only answer is because. I only know this because that was what I was told hundreds of times when I would ask why. I, I think this is another piece of the education system, the, the trial and the education system, right? Is that we, we begin to teach that answers are the important things and questions are kind of annoying. Um, and yet, and yet the minds that we are most drawn to, excited by, the thing, the, the, the engine that can power us to live a vibrant, creative life is curiosity. Uh, and so when you say almost everything I do is influenced by curiosity, this is, this is an amazing engine for innovation and your own personal growth, as opposed to a lot of, a lot of people I work with have because because society pushes it um, and because there are certain career paths that push it, they the thing that they trade on is their expertise. And expertise is a, is a real double-edged sword in complexity. Expertise is your, you know, if you can use it as a building block, it's incredibly useful. But if you use it as the thing you fall back on, like the thing that just is, then it blinds you to all kinds of possibilities that curiosity opens up. So the, this question about how do we deal with our expertise and how do we help stay curious anyway, I, I think this can be taught. I think curiosity can be, is, is, a, is a force we can tap into that's very often closed down by our schooling and by our early, the early part of our careers where expertise is the, um, is the thing that wins us whatever prizes we're after. Um, but if curiosity won us the prizes we were after, I think, I think people could do this and I think that they would love it. I think there's something incredibly satisfying and enjoyable about giving yourself over into your curiosity. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because that just ties so perfectly to this other idea uh, in complexity where you say in order to thrive in complexity, we need a whole ecosystem of connections, deep and lasting connections, weak and widespread connections. And this means that creating connections of all varieties is profoundly important for any of us who are creating or supporting human ecosystems in an uncertain world. And it reminded me of something that Robert Greene said to me when I interviewed him about his book, Mastery. He said the analogy is biodiversity. He said the more species you have in an ecosystem, the richer that ecosystem becomes. And that to me was pretty much the foundation on which I chose 
every guest. That's how you end up with porn stars, drug dealers, bank robbers, and people like you on a podcast. Yeah, diversity becomes, and diversity of connection, diversity of perspective becomes uh, fundamental to flexibility, to agility, right? Because because the the more unitary we are, the the smaller our capacity to take perspectives, the 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 more similar to us our whole ecosystem is, the more fragile we are. Like it it might be pleasurable uh because there are things that are easy about it. Um but it's it's a dangerous pleasure in a world that's uh advancing as quickly as our world advances. Yeah, and yet you we're in a world that is becoming more polarized and divided specifically because of, of of this this thing. Like, you know, people tend to gravitate towards their own kind. Confirmation bias is rampant. I feel like the internet and social media are breeding grounds for confirmation bias. And you you talk about this idea that monocultures are brittle and they don't handle change and uncertainty well. And yet the way that we've sort of shaped our political landscape or social systems, our economic landscape are literally turning into the kinds of monocultures you're talking about. It's terrifying. I agree with you. And this is, you know, this is what, this is what an algorithm does, right? These algorithms are invested in giving, uh, in figuring out exactly what we like and giving us exactly that thing. You know, it's, it's like, uh, like the research that kids get sick more once they go to school because their parents have been more successful at creating germ-free environments before school. And so they have less tolerance. We have increasingly smaller amounts of tolerance for difference, uh, and increasingly smaller amounts of tolerance for, uh, people who don't think or dress like our little crowd does. And that, I, I mean, in complexity, diversity is one of the great strengths you have. And so how do we make sense of the sort of diversity that matters to us? It doesn't have to be every kind of diversity. Diversity of shoe wearing probably doesn't matter very much, right? But, um, but there are some forms of diversity that really matter. How do we get access to those forms of diversity? I, as as the as the US becomes more polarized it also becomes more ridiculously ungovernable right there was something about the weaving together of the progressive and conservative perspectives that creates just a whole bunch of possibility you segment those things totally away from each other and you say there will be not one drop of those guys in me and not one drop of me in those folks and then you get a really brittle system with very, very tight boundaries indeed. And you can't solve a new challenge as it crops up. You're, you're paralyzed, which, you know, many governments these days are. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I wanted to tie all of this together with a complex, with a, a concrete example. And there's something you say, which made me realize this would actually be harder than I thought. You say our regular habits were probably imported from the complicated world where we could figure out the best outcome and build a plan to get there in the world. We could use our past experience to figure out the various steps to arrive at our desired end. In the complex world, that kind of step-by-step approach won't work. And 
you know, I, I realize that this question would probably be ridiculous because it seems like it would be impossible for you to answer it based on me reading that. But I thought to myself, okay, let, let's tie this all together with a concrete example. So let's say somebody like me comes to you and says, hey, I have a product. I want to increase the sales of that product, which I, I've overly simplified everything now. But, you know, and I realized my immediate thought was I want a step-by-step approach, which I realized you can't mm-hmm. give me. So since you can't give me a step-by-step approach, what would we do? So I, I think the first thing we do is we pay attention to what we know now, right? We pay attention to the present. What are you learning about the product? And what are you learning about who values it, who cares about it, who, who couldn't, you know, what markets you just completely can't enter into? And so there, there's this whole investigation of now that in complexity really matters. Uh, and if you can get there, there's the investigation of now with a team that's diverse enough to be able to notice the questions you're not asking. I worked once with a, with a beverage company. Um, they made alcoholic beverages. And as they began to pay attention to now and they began to ask, like their, their question was basically, you know, who are we not, who are we not paying any attention to? Who have we written off? And they realized, you know, in something that felt like an epiphany to them, that might not sound like an epiphany, but they realized that they had written off those people who don't drink alcohol, right? They were like, oh, those are not our clients. Um, But actually, what's the fastest growing adult beverage category? It's non-alcoholic stuff, right? What things people want to like drink a grown-up drink, um, but don't want any alcohol in that grown-up drink. When they included that, they found a, an incredibly fertile area. But they they found that because they used a diversity of people, um, not just alcohol brewers and sellers. Uh, they used a diversity of people to ask these questions. What are we noticing about the whole landscape now? So I think that's the first step. And then iterating your way, finding ways to iterate more quickly, and test and learn, test and learn, test and learn. Um, We tend to be pretty good at putting some new idea in the world. We tend to be less good at noticing what we're learning from it and less good still at cutting our losses when it's time to cut our losses, to stop stuff. So those are the, those are the sort of things I would pay attention to. Um, What's now look like? What's the diversity of perspectives you have on now? And what can you try and how can you stop? It just makes me think, like I did this survey of my audience for one of these products and just after hearing you say that, it, like my instinct was to immediately act, but I realized I probably should spend more time just reflecting on the responses. Yeah, yeah. And seeing what surprised you. One of the, one of the interesting findings is that the most creative people are really oriented to surprise. No. But people who aren't that creative, who don't like go after surprise, we tend to pick up because of our cognitive biases. We tend to pick up on the patterns we expected. So we're like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, that's, this is what I expected. So every time you, you put a, a question out and you hear what you expected, then you can ask like, how much of that is just my bias filtering mm. out the stuff that's unexpected because it's in the stuff that's unexpected that the real possibility for growth and innovation lies. 
Yeah, I don't remember where I read it, but somebody said that, you know, when the founders of Google came up with the page rank algorithm, it was from noticing anomalies, not predictable things. Yeah. Yeah. This is what we want. We want to be we want to be tuned to that. Yeah. A billion dollars later. (laughs) I think exactly. Those results have turned out pretty well. (laughs) It worked for them. Yeah. Well, this has been fascinating. Um, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think I think being the whole of who we are is what makes us unmistakable, right? I think I think really developing the the particular organism that is us and uh, and valuing the 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 whole package of our humanity, the the likes, the dislikes, the the quirks, the brilliance, bringing all of that to the table, I think is what makes this unmistakable. Amazing. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, the book, your work and everything else that you're up to? You can check us out at cultivatingleadership.com. And we have, because we believe in getting these ideas out there to change the world, we have just a ton of free stuff, free resources on our website and on our YouTube channel. Um, for people who are interested in dipping their toes in um, and playing with these ideas, which we're, you know, we're, we're playing with and learning more about every day. That's our job. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.